You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. I don't want them to think I'm weird. I have a long way to go before I start sharing my faith. I don't know enough. What if they ask me a hard question? Isn't that what the church is for? I'm scared it will hurt our relationship. I don't want to start an argument. The right moment just doesn't come up. I'm a pretty shy person. In today's culture, no thank you. I let my life speak for itself. I don't need to say anything. Who wants to talk about that? I've got too much on my plate. They'll think I'm weak or crazy. As if my life and words will make a difference. funny how if you're in this room and you would consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I'm going to guess that you would say it's been one of the most impactful things in your life. And I don't know if you've ever ran into some people that have had impactful things happen. They tend to want to let you know, right? Anybody ever ran into some of those? Sometimes it's a little excessive, right? This is a safe place. We can share that. Um, But it is interesting when a dynamic of sharing our faith, it can be something that's incredibly difficult for all of us to do. As I say that, I am not omitted or removed from that as well. If you've come here for a long time, you know when I start talking about Jesus, it's hard to get me to stop, which is why that screen turns red every single week, letting me know that my time is up. But uh, if I was to interact with you just out on the street or in the road, I I would love to talk with you about Jesus. But for me, the hard thing is getting that conversation brought up. I'm not good at it. It's challenging. When the moment comes, I get a little bit anxious. I wish I was just better at redirecting and turning that relationship or turning that conversation into that. But so if, you, if you're here and you could relate to one of the things that was just mentioned in the video or something else, we just want you to understand or I want you to understand I get it. Like I get it. I've been doing this for a long time. I stand up in front of a stage. You could put me in a crowd of however many people. That doesn't bother me at all. But you asked me to get one-on-one and be the bridge that brings that conversation to that. I'm just not good at it. And I'm working in my relationship and trying to get better at it. But I think in some ways that if we were to boil the reasons down to all of it, most of us would just say we're a little bit scared. We're a little bit intimidated. We're a little bit anxious. We're not necessarily sure how to draw the conversation. Or maybe we are a little bit worried that somebody would be a little bit weird. But in that, in that call of Jesus saying, hey, as I'm leaving, this is the charge I have for you. This is what I want you to do to go and be my witnesses. Very last thing that Jesus says to his followers, followers before he ascends us to heaven is you will be my witnesses. You're going to share to other people what I am like. And as you do that, they're going to find themselves in a position where I will move in their life and they will come to know me. And I want to do that through you. But even in that, we find ourselves removed and it's hard to trust through that. I mean, in general, it's just hard to trust in life. Can I get an Amen. A couple of you are like, no, I'm good at it. Well, good, we're going to talk after. It's hard. And the reason I think sometimes it's hard to trust is because some of the interactions we've had with people that maybe should have been trustworthy that we haven't found the trust we were looking for. Because of that, we take it into the next relationship or the next interaction. You get a new job or maybe you're dating somebody differently or uh, even in, in marriage and we don't trust because we haven't felt maybe 
we would have gotten out of it what we should have. Somebody has let us down. They committed to something, and they just didn't come through in the way that we'd hoped they would. And then this is what happens, I think, for most of us, because it definitely happens for me, too, is we place that lack of trust that we receive from other people on top of God. And what happens is all of us are creating a picture of who God is in our minds, and that picture is sometimes defined by things that it shouldn't be. And the reason I say that is because I know I've done that in my life and my experience as well. But sometimes we interact with God, and even through those, we tend to not get the picture that we would like. Maybe you've prayed and you've asked God for something over and over, and the answer he had was no, and it left you scratching your head. Or maybe you prayed and you didn't hear anything at all, or you're here in the room and you're like, I'm not even sure Jesus was real, but if he existed, like all the things that it says in here, like I'm pretty much out on that. And in it, we all have this image of who God is that maybe isn't necessarily on paper, but it's definitely developed in our mind. I like to mess around with chat GTP. Um, I promise you I've never had it right one of my sermons, never had it right one of my messages. A lot of you are thinking you probably should, and that's okay. Um, I'm working on that, right? But uh, one of the things I have it do is, is proofread some of my emails and things that go out. Another time, if I have a sentence that I just can't find the structure I like, I put it in, and I have it spit back out something, and I'll take some of the words and, and merge it and make it my own. But in preparation for today, I asked ChatGTP what it thought God looked like. And boy, it was like a huge document, right? And I perused through it, but the very last paragraph it wrote I thought was so pertinent and good for today. This is what ChatGTP says. It says, overall, in our attempts to visualize or describe God's appearance or who he is are limited first by his ineffable nature, but are also subject to individual and cultural interpretation. Boy, that hammer hit that nail right on the head. You and I will create a picture of who God is based on our interactions with people, churches, Christians, sometimes him. But what I think is a lot of times that image is blurry or doesn't really create a great image of who God is. And actually, God knew that. If you're sitting in this auditorium and you would feel that, know that that has been an experience throughout all of human history. So much so that one of the specific reasons that the Bible gives of why Jesus came was to help us with that. One of Jesus' followers, a man named Paul, wrote part of what we have in our Bible. And in the book of Colossians, which is a letter he wrote to a church in a city called Colossae, he told them this. He said, Jesus is the visible image of an invisible God. And the reason that he shared that is he's saying, when you're struggling, when you're interacting, when you don't know what to think, what I want you to do is go look at Jesus. Look at his life, look at how he interacted with people, look at what he did, and you will get a picture of who I am. I've said this a lot lately, and probably some of y'all that have come regularly are going to get sick and tired of me saying it, but I'm not going to stop, at least until I'm led to something else, because the way that we create an image of God will have a dramatic impact on our life, and I think God is such that he wants to press into our lives to redefine or maybe repaint, recharcoal, rescratch what that image of who he is is like in order to show us what he has for us in our life. We're gonna talk about that today. We're gonna to talk about that as Jesus interacts with some of his disciples and followers and see from what happened to them what we can glean for our lives. But before we do that, I wanna take a moment to pray, receive our offerings. Well, I'll just bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for today. I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you what you want for what you wanna do in our lives. May we be open this morning, whether we're a follower of yours or here and not even sure you're real to allowing you to have the pen, the paintbrush, the piece of chalk, and coloring in the way that you really are so that we could see it. I ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. 
So our ushers are gonna come forward now. First, let me say, as we receive our offering, if you are a guest, we don't want you to feel any way obligated, like you need to participate in this part in our message. I know some of you will have come prepared to give, and I wanna thank you for that, because when you give, you enable, and you are the fuel for our ministry. We're able to have a team that worries about how kids will receive the Bible because of your generosity. We're able to send money to wells and have them dug overseas because of your generosity, and we are incredibly thankful for it. But today I wanna take this moment to just show you where we are in our giving as a campus. We said over the past couple of, uh, every couple of months we would do this, and we're due. So you can see at the very bottom of the screen, the first line will show what our year-to-date budgeted need is. It's that 1.274 million number. So that's what we budgeted for where it would take to do some of the ministry that we have planned to do. And you can see the actual right next to it is a little bit underneath it. It's 1.089 million. So we're approximately behind 15% on where we are in our giving budget. And first, we don't want you to be nervous like heat's not going off in the service. Nobody at K-Kids is going to quit and just leave all of our children to terrorize it. I have you know, a whole bunch of kids, so I make sure that part doesn't get axed first. Um, but there is a reality, right, that we just want to make you aware of, is that, you know, we're probably going to have to do some budget realignment and things and shift, and we're not anxious, but we're okay tightening our belt, but we also want to put this out there because we have had people say to us, I wish I would have known. So we just want to make you known, and if you are somebody that would prayerfully consider if there's something that God wants you to do about this, we would love for you to engage him um, and talk with him and see what that is. No, but no big pressure, no influence, but like I said, we want everybody every couple of months to see we are, where we are sitting. So we've done that. Now let's go ahead and jump in in today's text. We're gonna be in Luke chapter 10. There's really no context. Jesus has his disciples, a group of them, and he has a task for them. And we pull up the scripture and see what it is that he says to them. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 1. It says, The Lord now chose 72 others, and he sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and places that he had planned to go and visit. These were his instructions to them. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into the fields. Now go and remember that I am sending you out as lambs among the wolves. But don't take with you any money, nor a traveler's bag, an extra pair of sandals, and don't stop to greet anyone on the road. Whenever you enter someone's home, first say, may God's peace be on this house. If those who live there are peaceful, then the blessing will stand. If they are not, the blessing will return to you. Don't move around from home to home, but stay in one place, eating and drinking what they provide, and do not hesitate to accept hospitality. So the first thing the text cues us in on is that Jesus actually has far more than just 12 disciples who are following him. I think all of us are pretty familiar with the 12. We know a lot of the accounts and the stories written about them, but we will very quickly see here that Jesus had a much greater following of other individuals, men and women, that he wanted to invite with him on this journey of following him. And what he does in this moment, he says, I got a task for you, and it's a pretty significant one. Like, it's gonna have great things involved. I'm gonna come to these places and I want you to go there and I want you to kind of create the path, maybe set the plan for what it is that I am going to do and I'm gonna actually empower you to do some pretty great things. But in the process, this is not gonna be an easy call. Right, like think of some of the things that he said. First part is he's like, I don't want you to bring any money for the journey. Anybody in the room still carry cash? Okay, good. Like, I'm in the minority. My wife's not here, but she would, like, if she only has 10 bucks on her, I'm like, 
my dad was a really good lecturer, um, so I tend to give lectures. I know none of you would have ever thought such a thing. Um, and I'm like, babe, you need to carry cash, right? Like, like, it's important. What if the credit card machine is down? And Jesus is telling them, I don't want you to worry about any of that. Don't worry about carrying money. Don't worry about an extra pair of sandals. No, like, like travel on suitcase with some cliff bars and whatever in case you get hung up. And, and I'm going to need you to just trust whenever you go that you haven't called your auntie or your uncle or your friend that you are going to find a place that I have preset for you to receive hospitality. And you see, what Jesus is trying to do in this is help them realize that he's got this wonderful plan for their lives, but in order for them to find it, there's gonna be a moment where they have to trust him for what it is that is about to come, right? Which is a hard thing. We've talked about trust just in sharing in their relationship, but in this moment, there's a greater call. It's sharing and then trust me for the journey as well. And see, what I think we can tend to do is we read the Bible. We, we, we read about these people, and we think that maybe because they were with Jesus or because they're in the Bible, that they supernaturally just heard a word from the Lord, and the thing they did is just, just skipped away. Yeah, oh, Jesus has shared it with me, right? And, and, and they didn't have hang-ups. They didn't have struggles, and they didn't have problems, but that's not the case. You read throughout the Bible, biblical characters, you will see them struggling with things that they are called into. And I guarantee you, when Jesus gave them this command, some of these folks had some concerns. <laughs> uh, Jesus, I have a question. Uh, my mortgage is coming due, and um, if I'm gone for a month, who's going to pay it, right? And, and then think of the spouse who wasn't there, and you come home, and they're like, hey, hey, babe, hey, husband, um, Jesus told me I gotta leave you for a month or whatever it is. You think all of those conversations were just like, praiseth the Lord, thou thee go and be blessed, right? Like, no, that's not how this stuff always happened. You see, when you say you have to trust me, it's indicating that there's something inside of you that isn't necessarily gonna agree or understand the entirety of the call. These people would have felt that. They would have seen and understood that this wasn't necessarily an easy thing. And I'll bet the question they were asking is how? How is it that I can deal with these emotions, my relationships, and do what it is that you are saying? And what's fascinating is Jesus actually gives them at the very beginning of this call what it is that they need to do, how they can make this happen. Did anybody catch it? It was one word. One word he gave them right at the start. It's in verse two. Pray. Yes, in order to do what it is that I'm going to call you into, you're going to have to pray. You're going to have to bathe this thing in communication to me because what I'm challenging you to in this moment is not something that's insignificant. If you were here two weeks ago, Brian Mowry, the senior pastor over our entire church, said we need to be a people that pray first because if we don't pray, we won't develop a trust relationship with God where we can lean into whatever it is that he's calling us into or maybe is just happening around us in our lives. And that wasn't even the extent of it. Remember verse three says you're going to be lambs among wolves who's been to the Detroit Zoo yeah a lot of you good you better respond because now I know you've been there right was there not too long ago with my kids there's a wolf exhibit anybody ever seen a lamb in there I need an auditory response no very good why lambs eat dinner yes I'm more of a beef person but you know whatever but lambs and wolves don't mix 
And not only is Jesus calling them into something hard, but he's saying, these are going to be the people against you in the middle of this journey that I am calling you into. See, sometimes there is going to be a task laid on our lives that is going to take a significant amount of faith and trust. And in order for us to find and be able to follow it, we're gonna have to ask ourselves a question of Jesus, and I think they had to ask it then. In your life, you're gonna have to ask it, whether you're following it, and it all boils down to one thing. I I call it, we maple syrup it, right? Like we condense this mass volume of liquid into one thing, and this is the question they ask, it's the question you ask, it's the question I ask. Could we trust Jesus? Can we trust him? In that picture, that I've created of who God is? Is he somebody where I look at it and I can think to myself, is this somebody who is trustworthy? Now here's the interesting thing in the story. We actually don't get the details of what happens from the time they leave until they come back, but we get to see their response. This is what it says in verse 17. It says, when the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Yes, Jesus tells them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. You can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you, but don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. So as these people come back, they had a tremendous experience. Now, I'm sure there was difficult moments, times where, you know, maybe the hospitality wasn't there or they were a little bit hungry or cold. But if you look at the conglomerate, the entire picture, they would say God showed up in a big way, so much so that they were able to probably see people come to follow Jesus. And we know that they cast out demons in the process of it, right? So we look at this account, we think, wow, what a, what a great experience. But what I find fascinating is as they're proclaiming this stuff, how Jesus redirects their thinking, Right? I'm sure he was excited for them, built up for what they had just been a part of, but he wants them to understand something else. And it wasn't be joyous and and be so excited that you forget the thing that's actually most important. It's not the tasks you accomplished. It's not what you were able to do. It's the fact that your name is registered in heaven. He's saying, you're a part of my family. And that's the most important part. And the reason for that is why. See, there's going to be moments where it hits like this and you're offered supernatural protection like it seems that these people were, but there's also going to be moments where it doesn't pan out that way. And if our response is only able to be driven by the joy that we experience in following, there are going to be moments you are let down and you're going to take a piece of rough sandpaper or maybe a whole disc sander, whatever that picture of God is, you're going to go... And he is not going to look to you the same way he did before. This is why I have a problem with the prosperity gospel. Like, listen, I believe that God wants to prosper us and to help us in some way. But I also understand we will not experience the fullness of that in this world because it's broken. So in communicating that that's all what God has for us, we all run into the other side. And then the picture of who God is gets a little bit messed up, gets a little bit jacked with. If our results are the thing that determine our trust, we are going to be in trouble because it doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes it doesn't even happen that way when the results are good. A couple of baptism services ago, in the tank here on the stage, and I had the privilege of baptizing more people than I've ever baptized in my life. 
But life was hitting hard in that moment. Stuff was difficult in church. And I can remember going home having a long nap because I was just worn out. The next morning, wake up and being saying, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to work at a church. I want to go back. Business, it's simpler, it's easier. I can roll in a certain way and just help the church, right? So what I share that story for you to understand is even in some of the most glorious moments, if our hope is alone in that, it won't be enough. Now, as I've matured in my relationship with Jesus, even in that moment, I realized what was happening. I'd been through the ringer for a while, and what I felt wasn't what I wanted in my life. But I share that story with you to help you understand it's not always going to be like it was in this account. Like, yes, this is something to hold on to, but in our calling, there's going to be moments where we go into something else that's deeper and that's harder. And if you will read the Bible in light of all of the Bible, you will see that. My own personal quiet time I've been spending in the book of Acts, and I'm, I'm deep into it and reading it, but I was just blown away by something I feel like the Lord showed me. And so the book of Acts is actually comes directly after the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the accounts of Jesus's life. And it starts with him ascending into heaven and telling everybody to go, right? And Acts is about a book that transpires over the course of about 30 years of people interacting on their journey and following Jesus. And one of the main characters in the book of Acts is a man named Paul. Paul is a disciple of Jesus who never met him and initially hated Jesus. He was a religious leader. He knew more about the Bible than I will ever know in my life, probably times 10. And the assumption that he came to is Jesus was a heretic. So he made his life about persecuting his followers, putting him in jail or having them murdered because he thought Jesus' religion, the way, was taking people down a wrong path. But Jesus meets him supernaturally in a vision on a road and it changes his life and he becomes a follower and then sells out to sharing people about who Jesus is. Well, there's a moment where Paul would go Actually, his whole ministry was going to different cities and planting churches, being with them, establishing them, raising them up, and leaving. And there's a moment where he goes to the city of Corinth, which is where we get the letters of the two books of the Bible, First and Second Corinthians. And in that interaction, he has got a fantastic journey. The text actually tells us this. God speaks to Paul, and he says, hey, don't be afraid while you're here. Don't be smiling. I want you to speak out, because I am going to protect you. I'm going to be here, and the text specifically says no one will attack you or no money will harm you. And what we know from history is Paul stays there for a year and a half, establishing this church and living under this like parting almost of the waters of a supernatural protection for him. But again, Paul's job wasn't to stay in one city, so the Spirit tells him it's time to go, and he actually starts to head back to Jerusalem. And as he is on that trip, some of the plans for him are going to go a little bit differently. In process of going to Jerusalem, he stops in a place called Ephesus. It's where Ephesus. It's a place where he'd established another church. That letter he wrote to them is where we get the book of Ephesians in the Bible. And while he's there, he calls the elders and the leaders of the church together because there's something he wants to share with them. And this is what Paul says. He says to those leaders, you know from the day I set foot in the province of Asia until now, I have done the Lord's work. I've done it humbly with many tears, starting to tip his hand about what's gonna come. I've endured the trials that came from me, the plots from the Jews. I never shrank back from telling what you needed to hear, either publicly or in homes. I have had one message for the Jews and Greeks alike, and this is what it was. The necessity of repenting from your sin and turning to God and having faith in our Lord Jesus. You see, Paul was there, and what he's saying, I was faithful. 
I was doing it, I was slugging it, and we can see that it wasn't quite the same as it was for him while he was in the city previously, in Corinth. Things were starting to change. And if you're not sure that that was happening, he leaves no doubt for it in the very next verse that he says. Verse 22, Paul says this. Now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what waits for me while I'm there, except the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city, jail and suffering lie ahead. You keep reading through the book of Acts. You go into the next chapter, and I think it's about 24 verses later. Paul, one of Paul's friends, one of the leaders in the church comes to him. I can't remember his name, but the the individual has the gift of prophecy, which is very simply... um, It means that God actually permits them to see what's going to happen. And he comes over to Paul. He takes his belt off of him and he binds his hands. He says, this is what God's told me. If you keep going on the journey you want, when you get to Jerusalem, this is what they're gonna do. They're gonna bind you. They're gonna put you in chains and they are going to put you in jail, confirming what Paul had already known, what Paul had already experiences. And this is what I want you to understand about this. If Paul's trust was contingent on joyous missions, if it was considered, if it was all based on him feeling the right way or going and maybe having some light hiccups, but then having God work in a a magnificent, fantastic way, Paul would have thrown in the towel a long time ago. Paul would have quit. He would have said, I'm out. This is hard. It's too difficult. And I'm not going to be in on this. And I'm going to tell you, like I have not lived the experiences and the traumas and the things that Paul had to deal with. And I've felt it. I've felt it, so how much more so would he have felt it in this? But Paul came to understand something that dramatically impacted his life and how he would operate, how he would move in this journey of following Jesus. This is one of the things he understood, is that following Jesus would be one of the most rewarding experiences of his life. It's one of the most rewarding experiences of our lives. But it's also gonna be one of the hardest things you will ever do. Listen, Jesus wants to call you into something grander, something greater, something wonderful, but it will not be all kicks and giggles. It won't be all skipping and wonderful moments where you sing and you fear the spirit move. There are gonna be times where I don't know what your equivalent is, but you might even do something wonderful and then you're gonna feel like, I wanna quit. I've had enough. This is hard. This is challenging and this is difficult and if you read throughout the Bible, you will find characters who dealt with the exact same thing, which I believe leads us to ask this question. If God is somebody that I can trust, if the picture is supposed to be so much better, so much greater, how is it that we do it? How is it like Adam had one of the greatest moments of his life and after that he felt like he wanted to quit. If that's the case, how is it that we endure? And I think... I believe I would say I know. We go back to Luke chapter 10, verse two, when Jesus is about to send his followers out on what would be a joyous mission. And we do the very thing that he told them to do. He says, you gotta pray. You gotta be with me. You gotta tell me what's going on. You gotta interact with me with not just the good, but also the bad and the difficult, because I wanna be close to you. I wanna help you navigate and deal with the struggle and the tension and the hardship that you are going to walk into and through that I wanna build something in you so that when it comes, it will hit differently. You won't get knocked over. You might go back, but I'm gonna be in you and I'm gonna hold you up 
and I will help you to walk forward. This is the picture that I've come to know of who God is, and it's, I believe, what he wants every single one of us to know. This is what people who have walked with him and experienced hardships have come to find out. The psalmist says it like this in Psalm 148. He says, the Lord is close to everyone who calls on him. He is close to those who call on him in truth. The message is a modern paraphrase of the Bible, and this is how it says that verse. It says, God is there. He's listening for all who pray and mean it. You see, his desire is to move close to us. And the only way in this world where we will experience trouble, where wolves walk among the lambs, that we are able to deal with whatever it is that gets thrown at us is for us to have the type of relationship where we're bringing it all to him. Every single part, the good and the bad. I can't tell you how many times me and the Lord have hacked it out in the car or in a space where it's just me and I'm not allowed to say that stuff on this stage. Not, not the story, but some of the words specifically. So if you find yourself in that place, know that it's okay. Know that's what God wants because this is why. He knows that you have to be good or understand that he is good to take that in order to build the trust that we all need in order to go on this journey with him. See, I think it works like this. If we wanna learn to trust God, we have to go through the highs and the lows and talk to him about everything. And as that happens, this is what will occur in our life. We start to pray. And as we pray, we build relationship with him. And as we build relationship, relationship will dictate that we start to build trust because his character is good and we can believe it. We can believe what it is that he says. And as we build trust, we will begin to build dependence. We will depend on him when it doesn't make sense, when we can't figure it out, when we're doing it in what seems like on our own, but he's actually there because he's never left us. And that dependence will lead to us following him. You see, prayer is the start, and prayer will get to the place where we can be dependent in such a way that Paul was, that when the Spirit told him, chains, prison, beatings wait for you. We might not charge in skipping, but we will faithfully go where God calls us because we've been with him. We've learned his character, and we have realized whatever of that nonsense is happening, he is good. You see, our prayer will lead to a following. You see it all throughout these pages, all throughout the biblical characters. It's a theme from the first page to the end of what God wants to do. And it wasn't just for them. It's for you and it's for me. But in order to find it, we got to be people that go with him. You look at characters like Moses who led the Israelites out of slavery though they rebelled and everything it took when his brother was betraying him. He leaned into God. You look at people like Rahab or Ruth or women who were degraded in a way that they never should have been. And their trust in God led them to understand his character. You go to Peter and Paul and James and the Simon, the disciples, the other. This, this is the formula that got them to the place. You look at modern day heroes, we're celebrating Black History Month, we are celebrating it. Because people like Dr. King, who had a faith that led him to something else, people like Rosa Parks, 
who are willing to step out in order for justice, which is something we find in the pages of the Bible. Rosa Parks has a quote that I think is fantastic for today I want to share with you. This is what she says. I learned to put my trust in God and to see him as my strength. Long ago, I set my mind to be a person who does not give in to fear, a free person who doesn't give in to fear. Did you notice what she didn't say? She didn't say I was never scared. She didn't say fear never came, I wasn't intimidated. She said, I have come to a place where I've learned to trust so that I don't give into that. This is the only way that I know, see that we can have this. And if you were to make me boil this down into one thought for every single one of us, whether you're a follower of Jesus or you're not, and you're just checking him out, I would tell you, carry Jesus everywhere. And what I mean by that is talk to him. Talk to him about what you understand, what you don't understand, what you want to have happen, what you love to see. Because if you do that, oh, watch out, something will happen. Today we're celebrating also our Move Out Network, which is a, a space where we say people will come with giftings, talents that we just can't do like inside of the church, but we want to support them and help them take what God has just burdened in their heart and move out into the community with it. If you go to our website, kensingtonchurch.org, it's not up there, sorry, slash move out, you will find a plethora of people who had a God-ordained vision on their heart, and because of it, people's lives have been impacted and changed, and not because they came in and they listened to Adam every week, or, or Shauna, or Sam, or Craig, or Brian, or whoever it is, but because God got a hold of them, and he said, I made you for something unique and different, and if you will follow me, you will learn to trust me. I will take you on a journey where people will be impacted because of the work that you're willing to do. I would say today, check it out. Look and see. Maybe that's the step that God is leading you into. And if you're here in this room and you're not sure, like you're like, I don't want to jump in yet because I don't know about Jesus, tell him that. Talk to him about it. This week, let him know what you feel, what you think, what has created the image that you have of him because I believe with everything inside of me that he will show up and he will start to journey with you. If we will carry Jesus everywhere, he will do something. Last thing I want to say, this is my challenge to you. This week, carry Jesus everywhere. Talk to him. Ask him. Tell him you want to follow, you want to know, but your trust isn't there. If your trust is there, ask him to show you what's next. You ask him in a real way. You mean it inside of you. It might not happen in the way you think, would hope, could imagine, but he will show up. He will show up not only to tell you what he thinks about you, but in order to lead you into a life like this. The other thing I would ask of you, come back next week. There's a next part in this series that's really connected today that I want to share with you, and I hope that you will come back and be a part of it and let us as a group, as a church, as a staff, share that with you. This is what God wants to do. The only thing we have to do is step out in trust, and I believe that starts with us communicating with him. Let's pray. Lord, I have seen what you can do. My hope and prayer for me and for every single one of us is we would get a clearer picture of who you are as we step out, as we trust, as we talk to you. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.